Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. One of the ironies of this situation is that when people think of the Amanda Knox story, what they're really thinking of is the murder of Meredith Kircher by Rudy Gaudet. They're thinking about how that whole situation went awry when really my story is the story of someone who was surviving a very terrible, overwhelming circumstance, and I just did the very best I could with the circumstances that were handed to me. She was told that she was their key witness, the person who came home and discovered the crime scene, the person who called the police, the person in the house who was closest to Meredith. She had probably seen or heard something that would likely help them solve the case. And she believed them. She answered all of their questions, 53 hours of them, over five days. Investigators were under a ton of pressure to find the killer. They berated her, told her she wasn't remembering things. They actually physically hit her in order to get her to sign the statements. Statements written by them, not by Amanda. And it was only after that after I was brought to jail, after I was, you know, handcuffs, stripped naked, taking photographs of my body, like that entire time, no one ever told me that I was a suspect. No one. What would follow was a nonstop international media explosion. The headlines about Amanda Knox played out like a far-fetched, cartoon-like narrative, reported without reservation and without actual evidence. You know the tropes, a sex-obsessed, man-eating she-devil who hated her victim for being so pure and virginal. And these extreme stories were recycled and repeated over and over again, exploiting an innocent woman and destroying so many lives in the process. Today on the show, how should we think about the stories we're told in the media? Who is being helped and who is being harmed by the systems we rely upon for information? And what can we as consumers do about it? I'm Kimmy Culp, and this is All the Wiser, a show about hope and possibility on the other side of pain. My name is Amanda Knox. I am an ethical storyteller, but you probably don't know me for that reason. You probably know me because a very unethical story was told about me when I was 20 years old. The year was 2007. Go back in time. Do you remember where you were in your life? Maybe you had just bought one of the first iPhones to hit the market. Did you go see Juno in the theaters? Or maybe you were more of a Harry Potter fan. Amanda was like that, a big Harry Potter kid. She loved to read, was into poetry and languages, and spending time outdoors. And she had this big multicultural family 
full of relatives who were always spending time together in the quiet suburbs of Seattle. She went on to study language in college, and she worked three jobs in order to save enough money so she could live out this dream of studying abroad. She chose Italy for the same reasons many of us do. The food, the romance, perhaps even an under-the-Tuscan-sun moment or two. And then it happened. She got accepted into her study abroad program and started packing her bags for Italy. So um, my plan was nine months in Perugia to study the language and then three months over the summer in Rome to study poetry. You make the move to Perugia, move into a flat with three roommates, and do the early days meet your romantic expectations or, or what do you remember about that first month in Italy? 100% they met my expectations. Everything was awesome. I was living in this like beautiful little cottage right outside the center of town, like a hop, skip, and a jump away from my university. I was living alongside three young women, two of whom were Italian, which was awesome because I could always speak Italian at them, and one other exchange student from Britain. And we got along really well. We went out to dinner together. We, you know, Meredith and I were closer in age than um, Laura and Philomena. Laura and Philomena were in their late 20s and they had been friends for a long time. They were sort of our mentors slash guides. And Meredith and I were more similar in the sense that we were both on our study abroad trip. We were both pretty studious people. She had more of a built-in friend group uh, because she had some British girls that she knew who were also studying in Perugia whereas like I didn't have anyone from my school or anyone from the U.S. actually that I was familiar with at the time but we we clicked we all clicked it was just really awesome I was, you know, staying in a room. I was making friends. There was this girl in my class from Kazakhstan who I was giving guitar lessons to. It was really, really ideal. And I know you, speaking of romance, had yeah. met a Italian boyfriend, Raphael. Yes. And you were had a job at a nightclub. So it sounds like, as you said, you just really quickly immersed yourself and this experience you had dreamed of. Absolutely. But very quickly, the course of your life had changed forever. Yeah. Your roommate, Meredith, was murdered. What do you remember about those first days, that heartbreaking, shocking revelation so far away from home? Yeah, a lot of lives were irrevocably changed What I can tell you is that leading up to that really sudden, horrible event, everything was going completely well. Five days earlier, I had met Raffaele Selecito at a classical music concert that I went to with Meredith at the university. You know, Halloween had just come around and the town, which was really, really student focused, There were lots of parties going on everywhere. I remember that day, Meredith woke up late as usual. She slept in quite a bit. 
And when she woke up, I was at home. I think I was making myself coffee or something to eat. I don't remember exactly. But I remember she woke up and she still had makeup on her face from the night before. She had been dressed up as a vampire. She got up, did some laundry. It was a usual day. I guess the one difference was it was going to be a long weekend. So we didn't have to go into school. And me and Raffaele had been talking about going and for the weekend to visit this town outside of Perugia called Gubbio. So we were making plans to do that. And in the meantime, Meredith got changed, got dressed, told me about how her Halloween was. And then, you know, I'll never forget it. Just her throwing her purse over her shoulder and saying, all right, I'm headed out for the day. Have a great day. And that was the last I saw of her. I ended up spending the rest of the day and the evening and the night with Raffaele. And when I came home the next morning, I really was just expecting to drop in. I was going to change my clothes, take a shower, and head out the door so we could go on our trip to Gubbio. And I discovered a series of very unusual things in our home that at the time I did not know how to make sense of in the immediacy. Unusual things that in retrospect, people look back at and often tell me like, how could you not have known? But the thing for me is that the last thing that I thought was going to happen to me that morning was that I was gonna come home to a crime scene. I, I came home, my front door was open, I found some drops of blood in my bathroom. I found some feces left in the toilet of our second bathroom. And after I took a shower and changed, I went back to Raffaele's place and I said, hey, you know, before we head out, I saw some weird things at my house. Do you think I should be worried? He said, that sounds super weird. You should call your roommates. So I did. Two of them did not answer. One of them did. She told me that she would head back to our place with me to make sure that our house hadn't been broken into. We go back there. We discover that I had not noticed this the first time I came in because I didn't go into Philomena's room, but I opened her door and her window was broken. Then we did what we thought we should do, which was I had Raffaele call the cops. I didn't know how to call the cops in Italy at the time. And he explained that there had been a break-in. Meanwhile, Philomena comes home, meets me there. The police arrive, and they break down Meredith's door and find her body. Everything moved very quickly, very suddenly from that moment forward. Suddenly, everyone was yelling in Italian. Suddenly, we were pushed outside of our house. Suddenly, the house was closed off as a crime scene. All of our belongings were not available to us. We were witnesses. We had to be questioned by the police. I was in the police office for the next several days answering their questions for hours on end. I think ultimately it all came down to 53 hours over five days that I was answering questions in the police office with the police. And... That led to my arrest. The rush to judgment from the media, from investigators and the prosecutor was just extraordinarily swift. The interpretation of 
every move that you made down to eating pizza. I mean, in reading your memoir, it's just extraordinary Mm -hmm. to think, you know, it was interesting. I was thinking about, there's a point in the book where you talk about your German mother and grandma and that grief and shock is often sort of this reserved space, right? And the Italians expect you to howl, to scream, but but it appears she ate a piece of pizza. She didn't grieve or exhibit shock in the way that we do in our culture. You didn't have access to your apartment or your clothes or your belongings. You went to buy underwear. They interpreted that as, you know, you buying red underwear to go have wild sex. I mean, the presumptions were just, I mean, it's unbelievable to read about it and to think about it in your shoes. But at what point do you realize you are suspect number one and that the world's media is focused on you. Yeah, that was a shock because, you know, looking back in those days before I was arrested, I I promise you, I had absolutely zero clue that I was on the police's radar. It never occurred to me that someone would look at me as a suspect in this case. It was beyond me that someone would think that I would have anything to do with this. I I remember the police being short with me, that there was a ton of media focus on this case, that already like an hour after the crime scene was discovered, there were, you know, TV vans that were parked across the street pointing cameras at our driveway. I was aware of all of that. And yet... I believed the police when they told me that I was a witness, that I was someone who was important to their investigation, and that was it. That's what they told me. And I and I believed them. I genuinely believed them. My family members were calling me and saying, hey, do you think you should come home back to the States because this is really scary and who knows if there's a serial killer on the loose? When I told the police about that, they said, absolutely not. You should stay here. You're basically the key to this case. Even though, you know, I had I had no idea who would have done this to Meredith, who would have broken into our home, who would have raped and murdered her. It was still presented to me as I was important to the investigation. And when they were short with me, I understood it to be them being under a lot of pressure and feeling like they were relying on me when I couldn't give them all the answers that they wanted. Like, I remember them very specifically asking me, like, who could have done this? Who could have done this? You must know. Someone must have looked at her the wrong way or said something or done something. You have to, you know, there's got to be somebody. And I was like, I just, I can't think of anyone who would do this. Ultimately, that resulted in me and Raffaele, because he was my alibi, being called in for interrogation one last time in the middle of the night and them finally accusing me of lying to them, of not telling them everything I knew. Of course, I had told them everything I knew a million times over, but they didn't believe me. And it was only once they finally said to me, well, maybe the reason why we are not all on the same page is because you have witnessed something so terrible that you don't even remember it. Uh, There was a cop there who was part of the interrogation who told me this story about how she had been in this horrible car accident 
and woken up in the hospital and had no memory of it because it was just so traumatic. And she explained to me that this was likely what was happening to me, that I had witnessed something so traumatic that I could not remember it. That all of a sudden made all of the sense to me about why they were treating me the way that they were treating me, that they were calling me their star witness and they were saying to me that I was super important to the investigation and they were angry at me and they were telling me that what I was saying didn't make sense and they were telling me that everything that I thought I remembered was wrong and there was a message that my boss at the time sent me on my cell phone that I had sent to him a message after he texted me the night of the murder saying that I didn't need to come into work. And I said, okay, sounds great. Have a good night. See you later. And they interpreted that to mean that I had connected with him on the night of the murder. And so they were convinced that he was the murderer and that I had let him into the home. I, after hours of being berated and hit, started to believe them. I started to question everything that I knew to be true. I started to think that I was crazy, and I signed the statements that they wrote for me to sign. And it was only after that, after I was brought to jail, after I was, you know, handcuffs, stripped naked, taken photographs of my body, like that entire time, no one ever told me that I was a suspect. No one. When they took me to jail, they told me that they were taking me to a holding place for my own protection and that I would see my mom in a few days. And it wasn't until several days after my arrest that I was finally brought before a judge and officially told that I was under investigation and being charged with murder. Yeah, and I know that there was physicality in the room, that you were hit, and the signing of the spontaneous declaration that you think your boss, Patrick, is the murderer and that you were there. You know, this, I think brainwashing, it almost seems impossible, right, to explain to somebody who's never been pushed that far and under those circumstances because they are just unfathomable. But is there any analogy you found that does it justice, you know, just the energy in the room to place us there, what you were under? Yeah, it's true. I have found that this aspect of my experience is the aspect that people point to most as being hardest to empathize with or when they want to find fault in me. They point to this part of my experience as if to say that only guilty people would ever say or submit to a narrative that they know to be false. One, I would point to the facts, which is that one in four wrongful convictions involve this kind of submission to an authority that is telling you that you are involved and it is to your benefit to submit. Beyond that, I would say, you know, I've never been in an experience as scary and overwhelming as that experience was. So it's hard for me to find an analogy because I have never been pushed so far as to think that I was actually insane, that I just had no true access to my own memories anymore, to to question my own sanity to that extent. However, I do think that 
this experience is more common than people think. And it happens every time we are in a situation where the loudest voice in the room ultimately becomes the voice that everyone just sort of sighs and says, yeah, okay, have it your way. That same impulse to just say, fine, whatever you say. I feel like we've all had that in some relationship, even when we know that the person across from us is wrong. We go, you know what, fine, have it your way. It's that to the extreme, because here I was in a situation where days earlier, my roommate had been raped and murdered. I was alone in a foreign country with nowhere to live. And the people I thought that I could trust, the authorities that were there to protect me, they were the ones who were telling me that I was wrong and that I was in danger if I didn't do exactly what they told me to do. Yeah, and I would imagine the stress on your body, the sleep deprivation, and the language. I mean, while you spoke Italian, by no means were you fluent in speaking at the pace with the vocabulary that the investigators... Oh, yeah. And there were huge misunderstandings. Like when they brought the prosecutor in, they introduced him as the Publico Ministero. And I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know that Publico Ministero meant prosecutor. I thought that meant public minister, which to me conveyed someone who was there to protect me, who was on my side. I had no idea that this was the person whose job it was to make a case against me in court. So you're charged with murder. What are your most vivid memories about the early days in prison you've referenced? Obviously shock, claustrophobia, but what do you remember about those first days? And how long did you think you would be there? I absolutely in those first days and which turned into those first weeks thought that this was, I mean, of course I was scared. Of course I was overwhelmed. I felt an incredible amount of shame because very quickly after my interrogation, I knew that I had been manipulated and that I had signed statements that weren't true. And so I recanted pretty much immediately I wasn't listened to. No one believed me. And so I felt incredibly helpless. But especially in those first days and first weeks, I thought it was all just a really big misunderstanding that I had not conveyed myself well enough to the prosecutor and to the detectives that they just didn't understand me because my Italian wasn't good enough. So as soon as the evidence actually would come in in this case, as soon as they actually came back with fingerprint and blood and DNA and an analysis of the facts of this case, all of this big misunderstanding would be worked out. It would all be repaired. Ultimately, that's the same kind of message that my mom conveyed to me, that there had been this terrible misunderstanding and that we just had to wait out the process until people realized that I was innocent. Your mom is en route to see you, thinking she's going to fly there to comfort her daughter, her 20-year-old daughter, obviously in a foreign country with a trauma that's hard to fathom. She lands in Switzerland and ends up throwing up at the airport, learning that you've been arrested. What was that feeling the first time she makes it to you and you do see her 
in those early days. Yeah, my mom was en route. She was in the air while I was being interrogated that last time. And it's interesting because prior to that final interrogation, I hadn't been just called in in the middle of the night before. At the very least, they had had me come in during regular hours. But that final interrogation, I discovered later that they had been tapping my phones and they knew my mom was going to arrive the next day. So I think they felt like they had an opportunity to get me while I was still vulnerable before I had the protection of my mother. And that's why they brought me in in the middle of the night. My mom lands in Switzerland, tries calling me over and over again. I can't answer. I'm sitting there in my interrogation room. My phone is on the table. My mom is calling me and they won't let me answer. So here I am trying to explain to them, you know, my mom is going to think I'm dead if I don't answer. Please let me answer. And they won't let me. And she discovers that I have been arrested, that there's this big press release, the case is closed, that they found who the murderers are. And I don't see my mom for a few days. The next time I see her, I'm in prison. We're in a visitation room. And the the relief that I felt when I saw my mom was huge. Because here I was in a world full of complete strangers, adults who are not being kind to me, who were being aggressive towards me, who were accusing me. And finally, finally, I saw the one person in the world that I needed to see the most that I had been begging to see for days. She held me and we cried. And I realized that I was not the adult that I thought I was. I was still just a kid and I was in a very scary situation and I needed my mom. And I just... I'm I'm a mom now. My daughter just turned one yesterday. And looking back, I have to... Um, I'm empathizing with my mom in a new way because in a way, she needed her mom because <laughs> she was also in an overwhelming situation that was out of her control. And she was telling me what I needed to hear, which was that there were adults in the room and they would do the right thing. And the scary thing was that, and one of the things that I've discovered from this experience is that sense that we have as kids that adults are a whole different kind of animal than we children are, that they operate according to logic and are reliable and are always telling the truth They're not like we're all just kids, some of us older than others, and we're all doing our best and we're making mistakes all the time. And so as much as my mom was trying to reassure me that now she was on the case and and adults were in the room and everything was going to be okay, that's not necessarily true. I don't know if that ever is really true. And it bears out in what happened ultimately in the case. Beautifully put, and I can hear the emotion in your voice as a new mom, and that resonates with me a lot. I think when you become a mother, your connection and experience of your own mother deepens. We'll be right back after this short break. 
For every episode of All the Wiser You Hear, we donate $2,000 to charity. Today's episode benefits the Frederick Douglass Project. The project facilitates structured meetings and respectful conversations between members of free society and prisoners so they can learn from one another, form powerful human connections, and transform both their own lives and society at large. You can learn more about the Frederick Douglass Project on our website or at douglassproject.org. Hey, All The Wiser fans. It is a new season of All The Wiser, and we have got something new and exciting just for you. Come on over and join us on our brand new All The Wiser Facebook group. You'll be able to talk about episodes, share story ideas, and connect with other listeners in this community, just like you. You can find the link to our Facebook group in the episode description, where you are hearing this now, in the show notes, or on our website at allthewiserpodcast.com forward slash community. We hope to see you there. Now, back to the show. We're back, and Amanda has been arrested for the murder of Meredith Kircher. But only two weeks after her arrest, a fourth suspect was named, Rudy Gaudet. His DNA is found all over the crime scene. He has a criminal record. He fled the country the day after Meredith's murder, and after admitting to being physically present at the girl's apartment, he is arrested and convicted. Amanda's boss, Patrick, is released, but it was only the beginning for Knox and her boyfriend, Raphael, whose fight for freedom and justice would go on for years. Here's Amanda. When two weeks later, all of this evidence comes back, fingerprints, footprints, DNA, pointing to this known burglar who breaks and enters into people's homes, who's threatened people in the past with knives. Like when all of that comes into the open and Patrick's alibi is established by multiple people who were at his establishment the night of the murder, a sense of tremendous relief came through me because I thought, oh my God, here it is. Here's the adults in the room coming to the rescue, having found what is really happening in this case. So Patrick is released. Tremendous relief on my part. But at the same time, here was this person who was arrested, who had this history, who I didn't even know his name. I knew he was somebody, I had seen his face before. He played basketball with some of our neighbors, but like not someone that I knew, not someone that Raffaele had ever seen before. He's brought into the fray and immediately the narrative isn't, oh, here's the actual person. Let's let's fix this mistake that's happened. No, it becomes... Here's this grand conspiracy orchestrated by this American student who was covering for this burglar by accusing her boss. And really, she's this criminal mastermind who organized a satanic sex game gone wrong. So instead of the story becoming less crazy and less unfounded, it became even more. Really, it, I think a huge part of that is because 
the Perusian police and the detectives, the prosecutor, everyone was under an international spotlight from the very beginning. And it was incredibly embarrassing to have to admit that they had imprisoned not just one innocent person, but three. And that they had coerced the roommate, (laughs) the indirect victim of this horrific crime, another foreigner who was studying abroad in this country, they had coerced her into falsely confessing and basically psychologically tortured her into submission. Having to admit all of that was too much. And so instead, what happened was the detectives either consciously or unconsciously affirmed a different narrative, one in which they were just as much victims of Rudy Gaudet and me as as anyone else. I continued to be the liar in their minds, but I turned into a criminal mastermind. I turned into a femme fatale who hated her roommate and who used two young men to rape and murder her. You know, the level of inhumanity and, you know, you talk about them telling you you're HIV positive, which is Mm -hmm. a strategy you, your writer, all you had was your diary to turn to outside of those far and few between visits with your family. The intention there is for you then to write about people you've been intimate and slept with that they use against you. Your diary is stolen. It's confiscated. It's handed to the media. The circumstances in which you were held, I mean, you talk about the television, you know, the nonstop images of you within the prison walls, the scene you bring to life in the book in which the prosecution turns you into a cartoon character, literally animates you murdering your roommate and friend. So there's just a level of inhumanity and not treating you as a human being with a heart and a soul. I mean, this is where we get into the question of ethical storytelling, because the unethical storytelling and the reason why this case got to the levels that it did was because the way that this story was told was ubiquitous. It was taking the narrative first, regardless of what the evidence presented, and pushing that narrative to its logical, or in this case, illogical extremes. If Amanda is guilty, then she must be the criminal mastermind who brought together these two people who don't know each other. Why would she do that? Why and how would she do that? Well, she must be a sex-obsessed she-devil who Meredith hated because she was such a pure person who was not sexual, and therefore she used her feminine wiles to manipulate these two young men into doing her dirty work for her and punishing this other sort of misogynistic stereotype, which is the virginal victim, and then pushed that narrative to all of his extremes. So telling me that I was HIV positive and that I had had sex with somebody irresponsibly and therefore I was sick and dirty and depraved person My own prosecutor was up there saying, this is what Amanda was likely telling Meredith as she was stabbing her. This is what you get for being such a pure, innocent girl. And then the shocking part of it 
which is that it didn't just exist in the ecosystem of the courtroom, but it existed in the ecosystem of the international media. So suddenly what is being said and reported without reservation in the Italian press is recycled and repeated in the British press and in the American press. And it isn't until I'm brought to trial and finally independent experts are brought in and people who are actually looking at the forensic evidence that people actually start to question that narrative. But up until that point, they saw it not as a narrative to investigate or question, but a narrative to exploit. I think that is one of the big takeaways from this story is that instead of treating human beings like human beings who deserve as much dignity as we can give them, given the circumstances, and deserve the right to be thought of as innocent before proven guilty— Instead, we exist in a world that is quick to judge and quick to slot people into characters in our own morality plays. So we become symbols. Real people become symbols in other people's ideas about the world and and how we want to describe the world. The cartoon female villain who is a sex-obsessed she-devil but appears to be the face of an angel, as one reporter called me, but the soul of a devil. That idea is persistent and not new, but is something that continues to capture people's imaginations and real human lives are lost for the sake of that story. Again, we've talked about the inhumanity, the disassociation of you as who you really are at the core. But there was also incredible humanity and love and beauty in your story. I would say the commitment and love of your family Mm. who put their lives, their jobs, their marriages on hold. I mean, the way they showed up for you was beautiful. I know you formed a relationship, a deep friendship with a, a Catholic priest. There was an American prisoner. You found purpose in your relationships with other inmates and really seeing them for who they were, complexities and all. You do a beautiful job of bringing that to life. Thank you. I feel like that's more my story than the story that most people know. And I think that's one of the ironies of this situation is that when people think of the Amanda Knox story, what they're really thinking of is the murder of Meredith Kircher by Rudy Gaudet. They're thinking about how that whole situation went awry when really my story is the story of someone who was surviving a very terrible, overwhelming circumstance. And I just did the very best I could with the circumstances that were handed to me. Then the same could be said to my family. My family knew what their priorities were. It was never a question in my family about, is it worth sacrificing this or that so that we can save Amanda? That became the entire focus of my entire extended family, multiple people taking out mortgages and retirements to pay for my defense, holding fundraisers, doing interviews, moving to Italy. I had a family member living in Italy at all times during my imprisonment. 
doing everything they possibly could in a situation that was ultimately out of their control as well. Yeah, and the people in Seattle who would gather in your home in Seattle every Saturday night and you would live for that 10-minute phone call. I just didn't, I, I could envision them all driving to be just to hear your voice on the phone. And the other piece of humanity are the people around the world, the lawyers, the legal experts who were looking at your case and seeing the injustice and building a case to fight for your acquittal and your freedom, which happens. I know the day of that, your emotional release was so much that the guards were confused that, that. Yeah. Yeah. When I, when I was acquitted, I started sobbing and I was so hysterical that as the guards were bringing me back to the prison to go gather my things and go back home, they were explaining to me, like, you know, you won, right? Like you won. Did you misunderstand? And I was like, no, no, I, I understand. Like I was afraid, like in that I had spent so long trying to make my life worth living in that terrible circumstance that I was afraid to hope that that terrible circumstance would be, I would be relieved of that. And so when that relief came, that was overwhelming. And I was introduced, you're right, to a whole world of people who spend so much of their time and energy focusing on these issues. I was not the kind of true crime fan that you see today, which is a young woman. You typically see a lot of young women who are interested in true crime. That was not me at all. And yet it was due to other people being more tuned in to the humanity that is behind these cases that I got any support whatsoever from the outside world, people who didn't know me in the first place, people who have dedicated their lives to shedding light on the problems that arise in the criminal justice system that lead to wrongful convictions. I imagine this idea that, you know, after the acquittal, that freedom is waiting. But literally the second you leave the court, I mean, there is car chases, paparazzi, safe houses. And you've said about coming home to Seattle after the acquittal, I left one cell and immediately entered another. The quiet of my childhood bedroom outside the telephoto lenses were fixed on my closed blinds. Yeah. Prison had given me an appreciation for all the freedoms I'd taken for granted. Freedom showed me how many I still lacked. And, you know, at the heart of this conversation, which you had been acquitted by the court of law, and while the prosecutors would retry you, eventually the Supreme Court would acquit you. But, you know, I've heard you talk about Monica Lewinsky, who I had the pleasure of meeting, such a smart and brilliant and brave woman, and all of these other women that are really sexually vilified. Mm -hmm. And the public shaming and the humiliation, the pain, the profit of those who pray in the media and the consumption. So I'm curious, at somebody who was on the receiving end of that, the almost global worldwide media shaming and mischaracterization, what is the societal antidote to this? Hmm. How do we do better as individuals, as consumers, as human beings, so this doesn't happen or, you know, happens less or in a softer way to people? What role can we play? 
That's a really great question. And I'm really glad you brought up Monica because she has been an incredible mentor and friend to me over the years. She was absolutely taken advantage of in so many different ways. And that story came to define her despite the fact that she had no voice and basically no control over that narrative. I found a similar kind of connection with other women, um, two of whom I've, that come to mind who I've interviewed for my podcast, Labyrinths. There's Lorena Bobbitt and Samantha Geimer, both of whom were vilified in the press, but both of whom were also victims. Obviously, Lorena Bobbitt was famous for having mutilated her husband. What people don't quite remember is that she was repeatedly raped and the victim of domestic violence in her relationship. And so her mental health in the lead up to that event was an incredibly important part of the story that very much did not make it into the jokes that are made about her to this day. Samantha Geimer is potentially a less well-known name, but she was Roman Polanski's victim back in the 70s. She was a 13-year-old girl who was raped by Roman Polanski during a photo shoot. She became presented in the press as this Lolita who had seduced this rich Hollywood filmmaker and photographer and instead of being acknowledged for the victim that she was. And absolutely, her narrative was spun out of control as well. And so again, it comes back to that question of like, how much do victims of the criminal justice system and of crime and of these overwhelming circumstances, how much do we actually have a say in our own stories? Yeah, And that's where it comes back to me. I feel that time and time again, real people who have lived really overwhelming interesting stories that are of public interest are never considered in the process of storytelling. They are considered objects. They are not considered storytellers in their own right, who have voices that can shape the narrative in a positive way. One of the things that I've tried to do ever since, I, you know, I started out this podcast by saying that I'm an ethical storyteller. That arose because I asked myself the question of, I have been treated so miserably, I have been exploited so completely by the criminal justice system and by the media, but is that just a built-in aspect? Is everything corrupt or is this simply a tool that is being wielded in the wrong way? And I've come to the conclusion that it absolutely is a tool that is being wielded in the wrong way. And the way that we can wield the tool of storytelling as storytellers is to, first of all, acknowledge that other people's stories don't just belong to us. Just because we have access to them and because no one can sue us for doing our spin on another person's worst experience of their life doesn't mean that we always should. And it doesn't mean that we just should do it willy-nilly. Absolutely, whenever I approach someone else's story, I ask myself, who has the most to gain and who is the most to lose? And taking that question into consideration as I pursue that story. And then on the flip side, as consumers of stories, we are all consumers of stories all the time. I think we need to ask ourselves, 
why are we consuming a story, first of all? Is it because we are indulging our sense of judgment? Are we enjoying the experience of observing someone else's suffering? Are we using this story to further our own narrative or to further our own ideas about how the world should be or how the world is and it needs to change? Or have we investigated that story with a genuine sense of curiosity, acknowledging that every single person involved is someone that we could potentially relate to? They're not just cartoon characters that we can sort of put into these boxes in our minds. Um, these are all really important questions. Right. <laughs> to walk a mile in my headline. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. You're a mom now. Your daughter, as you said, turned one yesterday, and I heard her sweet, sweet voice and coos. Beginning <laughs> when of we were doing call. sound check, when yeah. We were doing sound check. <laughs> what will you tell your daughter when the day comes when you have the conversation with her about what happened to you in your twenties in Perugia? Mm. So um, my husband and I, we we have these three core principles that we live by when we do storytelling on labyrinths. Our core principles are curiosity, compassion, and courage. Every story that we tell, we try to tell with a genuine sense of curiosity, with having compassion for the people involved, and having the courage to stand up for the truth, especially when it's complicated and messy and doesn't just fit neatly into our own story that we're telling ourselves about the world and about ourselves. What I want to do with my daughter Eureka is instill in her those same principles. I want her to feel the courage to ask questions and to have compassion, to be genuinely curious. So I'm not hiding anything from her. I do think that there are age-appropriate ways, like if my five-year-old daughter comes to me and is like, what's prison like? It's going to be a very different answer than if it's my 15-year-old daughter. But I think the main thing that I want to hold open for her is a door that she can approach and walk through at her own time and at her own pace. I'm not going to be force-feeding her the story of my worst experience, but I'm also not going to hide it from her. So I'm really going to let her be the the leader of that conversation. I love that. Her curiosity drive the conversation. Yep. You had a choice to hide. You could have changed your name, changed your hair, moved, hid. As you say, you decided to embrace the world that had dehumanized me and all those who had turned me into a product. The amount of courage to look to your story for meaning, for purpose, for direction, to continue to tell your story in new ways and ethical ways in the stories of others. It's something you continue to show up to do on your podcast, Labyrinths, and your book, Waiting to be Heard, and today on this podcast. So I'm curious, Amanda, when you tell your story, do you have a great hope of what people take away when they experience the truth of you and your story? That's a great question because every time I tell my story and I've, I've told my story as well as other people's stories. And I, to this day, I continue processing my story on labyrinths. And when I do public speaking, I don't want to like, just assume that I know what's going on in other people's heads. I absolutely just give of myself and hope for the best kind of thing. 
But the thing that's been most surprising to me is when people have come away from hearing what I have to say, feeling better about themselves. You know, you talk about the courage of embracing the world that hurt you. And I feel like on the one hand, yes, that's a courageous choice. And on the other hand, there is no other choice because we exist in the world and we are all interdependent upon each other and we are all making meaning of our lives depending upon how we can impact each other. What I get told that means the most to me is when they say, how did you find the words to articulate that experience? How did you find the means to communicate that inner anguish, but also that hope and that purpose and that sense of surviving in a world People have told me I found words that they needed for themselves that they couldn't articulate to themselves, and it helped them make meaning of their own worst experiences. And that, to me, is the most fulfilling thing, um, is knowing that like, when my voice was stolen away and I've fought so hard to get my voice back, I've also helped other people find their own voice, which is ultimately, I think, the goal of any ethical storytelling helping people find their voice. Amanda, thank you for for your voice, for your storytelling, for your truth, for your book, and for having this conversation today. Where can listeners follow you, find more about you and your work, your work with your husband? Where's the best place for them to learn more and engage? Thank you so much. Um, you can find all of my work at knoxrobinson.com, K-N-O-X-R-O-B-I-N-S-O-N.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Amanda Knox and on Instagram at Amama Knox. And you can listen to Labyrinths wherever you get your podcasts. And Labyrinths because of the mazes we find ourselves in, which is a brilliant name based Thank on you. your story. Yeah, Labyrinths, getting lost with Amanda Knox, because I know what that feels like. <laughs> Quick lightning round with Amanda Knox. Favorite childhood cereal? Ooh, uh, kicks. Best way to spend a Sunday? Ooh, uh, long walk in the woods. Good. Love that. First thing you do when you wake up in the morning? Uh, turn over and give my husband a kiss and then make coffee. Actually, no. Before I make coffee, I feed the cats because they're on top of us. <laughs> Binge-worthy show? Ooh, right now we're in the middle of Kim's convenience and I love it. Favorite quote? Um, Everyone is more than the worst thing they've ever done by the author of Just Mercy. Greatest hope for my daughter? That she is kind. Thank you again, Amanda Knox. All the Wiser is produced by Erica Gerard of Podkit Productions. Our composer and sound designer is John LaSala, and our associate producer is Tara Daigle. Before we go... I have a favor to ask you. We produce this show independently. So if you are a regular All The Wiser listener, we'd be grateful if you can show your support in one of the following ways. Post about the show on your social media, write about us in your blog, 
share a favorite episode with your favorite friend, or write us a review on whichever platform you listen to us. Even just one of these actions goes a long way to growing our community. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to check out our All The Wiser Facebook group. And until next time, take care of yourself and each other. Did you know a 2018 study showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual. When I was four months pregnant, I couldn't find a prenatal I could trust, so I created my own. Ours is made traceable, third-party tested for heavy metals, and recently earned the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. But don't just take my word for it. Get 25% off at ritual.com podcast. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.